According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we are in the book of Isaiah. Returning to our Isaiah study, it's been a couple of weeks, been three weeks actually, in the uh, Isaiah study, but we pick it up today with chapter 28. Woe to the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. Get to preach against drunkards this morning, so that'll be fun. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, giving each believer priest the opportunity to prepare your heart in humility. Remember, it's in humility that we receive the word implanted that's able to save our souls. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, and we call upon you to manifest your faithfulness one more time. Father, we claim the promise the word will not return void, it will accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. That includes this word at this time, in this message to these people. Father, we thank you for the piercing nature of truth, that your word is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And uh, yes, there is a rebuke in this chapter today. And it is a message against pride, more than drunken, drunkenness, or it's the proud drunkard of Ephraim, Father. And we all have realms of pride. We have things that need to be remedied. Your word does what it does, Father, and I thank you that it does that. You are able to humble those who walk in pride. And I pray this morning that we would be humble to receive the word implanted that's able to save our souls. Humble us to receive it, Father. Open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts, as we just sang. Thank you, Father. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Woe to the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim and to the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is at the head of the fertile valley of those who are overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has a strong and mighty agent as a storm of hail, a tempest of destruction. Like a storm of mighty overflowing waters, he has cast it down to the earth with his hand. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim is trodden underfoot, and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is at the head of the fertile valley, will be like the first ripe fig prior to summer, which one sees, and as soon as it is in his hand, he swallows it. In that day, the Lord of hosts will become a beautiful crown and a glorious diadem to the remnant of his people. All right, I'll stop there. Well, no, let me go on. Uh, Let's get down through verse 8. A spirit of justice for him who sits in judgment, a strength to those who repel the onslaught at the gate. And these also reel with wine and stagger from strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are confused by wine. They stagger from strong drink. They reel while having visions. They totter when rendering judgment. For all the tables are full of filthy vomit without a single clean place. All right, that's where we can stop. (laughs) All right. Oh, I love this chapter. There is so much in Isaiah chapter 28 that you can preach and preach and preach for for a month of Sundays and more. I tell you, there is so much doctrine and content in this chapter, and we're going to do well to get on our horse and gallop as fast as we can through the material here today. But we understand we are beginning really a new section here. If you recall, 
we had a section called Isaiah's Little Apocalypse. Do you remember that? Chapters 24 through 27 form a unit within the overall structure of the book of Isaiah. And so we concluded that before the uh, Ukraine trip. So we had a nice point to break there before uh, having a couple weeks off. We wrapped up chapter 24 through 27, went through the apocalypse and the visions and the, the material there. We're ready now to start a new section, which is really chapter 28 through 35. And it's not a happy section, all right? There's a bunch of woe in this section. In fact, uh, all of these woes, six woes that are delivered in these chapters, chapters 28 through 35, form a section of warning. Six woes are delivered in this section, starting with woe to the proud uh, crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. And we'll discuss the nature of the fall of the northern kingdom. We're going to discuss what happens when the northern ten tribes are swept away. The Assyrians are going to take them into captivity. There will be a remnant that will escape. Uh, Some God-fearing Jews are going to flee to the south, and they'll find refuge in Judah. They'll find refuge in Jerusalem. But the northern kingdom is going to come under God's hand of divine discipline. And as we read in these verses a moment ago, this is actually necessary. It is necessary as God uses uh, the agent in his hand, the agent of his wrath, the strong and mighty agent that's spoken of there in verse 2. And until God uses that, then he can't replace that wicked crown. See, the crown of the, the proud uh, uh, crown of the drunkards of, of Ephraim has to be replaced and the proper crown will be assigned in verse 5. In that day, the Lord of hosts will become a beautiful crown. All right. Well, we've got to get rid of the wicked crown first before the beautiful crown is eligible to be manifest in this way. We'll talk about that. So this is the first of the woes. In some respects, this first woe has a part two. And that part two comes in verse 14, uh, where it says, Hear the word of the Lord, O scoffers who rule this people who are in Jerusalem. And it's really part two. The word woe is not repeated, but it's really part two of the first woe that is given in verse one. In other words, Jerusalem better pay attention to the woe that Ephraim was given. All right. Just because somebody else is getting the the rebuke doesn't mean you can ignore it. Okay. You better learn from the rebuke that that Ephraim is receiving. So Jerusalem is not off the hook. And so the therefore in verse 14 ties it together with what precedes it. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, O scoffers who rule this people who are in Jerusalem. Okay. Now it's not the proud crown. It's not the drunkards. It's the scoffers and say, well, is that any better? (laughs) <laughs> Which would you rather be, a drunkard or a scoffer? Okay. Well, neither one's any good. And if the hand of God's judgment is upon the drunkards in the north, do you think the scoffers in the south are somehow uh, going to get away with what they're going to get away with? No, of course not. They need to learn from the north. And what's going to happen, sadly, is they don't learn from the north. They actually, by the time the south is swept away, 150 years later when the Babylonians come through, the south is in even worse shape than the north ever was. All right, And they are without even fewer excuses because they had the warnings of the northern uh, tribes having been swept away. So we'll deal with that. Chapter 29 has our next woe. I won't spend a lot of time on these, but it's woe, O Ariel, Ariel the city. This is uh, the term Ariel, like uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum's organization, Ariel Ministries, All right, as it applies to Jerusalem and blessing. We'll talk about that. Verse 15 of the same chapter. Woe to those who deeply hide their plans from the Lord. Well, who would do that? 
Uh, chapter 30, woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord. Uh-oh. All right, yeah, this gets pretty personal. We're going to deal with this. Who execute a plan, but not mine. Okay. And they make an alliance, but not of my spirit. I ask that question a lot. I say, well, what spirit's motivating that? It's not the Holy Spirit. What spirit is motivating that? We'll talk about some of that today. Chapter 31 and verse 1. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses. We'll discuss that because this is kind of the background for material we've got in chapter 28. And then finally, chapter 33. Woe to you, O destroyer. Woe to you, O destroyer. So these are the woes, six of them, that are delivered in this section. We begin with a rebuke to the northern kingdom of Israel, the proud drunkards of Ephraim. This is a woe message delivered to the northern kingdom of Israel, specifically their political leadership. The political leadership that is making use of false prophets and false priests in order to bring the people into the wickedness that they're coming into. The proud drunkards of Ephraim. This is a woe message delivered to the northern kingdom of Israel. Quite often, Ephraim is representative of the whole, like Judah is representative of the whole in the south. We know it's Judah and Benjamin. We know it's two tribes in the south. But simply speaking, it's shortened to be identified as Judah, the kingdom of Judah. In the north, we know it's ten tribes. We don't list out all ten tribes, but they are encapsulated by the headship of Ephraim. Ephraim forms the leadership in the wickedness, the leadership in the idolatry, in the false worship that they brought on board when they started this northern kingdom under Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Okay? This is the second time, actually, or more, that we've encountered this. Previously in chapter 11, we had a message that utilized uh, Ephraim to represent the whole of the north. In uh, 11.13, as it says, the jealousy of Ephraim will depart, and those who harass Judah will be cut off. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah, and Judah will not harass Ephraim. And so we've had a previous use of this, the use of Ephraim to represent the entire northern kingdom, specifically the hostility between north and south, the hostility between Really, the biggest issue Ephraim had was, yes, they were a Jewish kingdom, but the Jewish temple was in the south. Okay, That was a problem. And, uh, and to keep people from going to, uh, you know, back to the Lord their God, to go back to the, the temple in the south, they set up a, uh, a situation with two golden calves in the north. All right? They figured in Moses' day, one golden calf was not enough, <laughs> and they doubled down. And uh, they created a double golden calf religious system uh, in the days of Jeroboam. And that's how the northern kingdom operated. Uh, If you want another instance of this, Hosea 14 serves. Hosea 14, verses 8 and 9. And this is significant. Why? Because Hosea is the prophet giving the message in the north that Isaiah is giving in the south. All right. Daniel, Hosea, Joel. Hosea chapter 14, verses 8 and 9. And it's interesting. They, you know, if they'd have had uh, Fox News and live satellite coverage, I would expect they would have had reporters back and forth bouncing between Isaiah and Hosea, talking about the fall of uh, the northern kingdom, the fall of Samaria. Both prophets spoke of it. Simply Isaiah ministered in the south and Hosea ministered in the north. And interestingly enough, Hosea, the prophet, bore the same name as Hosea the king, the final king, the one that uh, saw the, the northern kingdom of Israel destroyed. So Hosea 14, verses 8 and 9, 
Um, O Ephraim, this is actually how the book of Hosea comes to a close. O Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? It is you who answer and look after you. I'm sorry, it is I who answer and look after you. I am like a luxuriant cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous will walk in them, but transgressors will stumble in them. What a conclusion, (laughs) right? What a way to, to wrap up the book, saying... There's the right way to walk. There's the wrong way to walk. The end. <laughs> and, and leave it with, uh, the, with the Jews in the north to say, what are we going to do? All right, we're going to stay here and get destroyed? Or are we going to go down to Jerusalem and get on board with the walk of, uh, of righteousness? Now, this promise for future righteousness, as I get back to this chapter, you look at this promise in verses 5 and 6, and it's pretty special but it becomes even more precious in contrast to the terrible example they have today for their prophets and their priests. The promise of future righteousness is especially precious in contrast to the present terrible example of Israel's prophets and priests. You know, you dream of a day when we have better leaders. You dream of a day when we have righteous government. When a day when we have decent churches and spiritual leadership because you look around and everybody's just drunk okay in that day the lord of hosts will become a beautiful crown and a glorious diadem to the remnant of his people oh that it were today (laughs) right couldn't happen anytime too soon today will be just fine a spirit of justice for him who sits in judgment isn't that something Wouldn't it be great if we had a legal system we knew was based on righteousness and justice? Well, that day is coming. A strength to those who repel the onslaught at the gate. You know, there's going to be some tough times between now and then, and there are going to have to be men and women that stand up and take a stand. Because there's an onslaught coming at the gate. Do you stand? Do you take your stand? Are you going to stand in the gap? Are you going to repel the onslaught? All right, and that future promise, that future promise is a great thing because he's going to bring it about. And the contrast of what it is we're hoping for with what we've got now is uh, couldn't be starker because what we've got now is a bunch of fools, a bunch of drunk fools. And uh, as we read already in verses 7 and 8, they're so drunk, they, they, there's not a spot left, there's not a clean place left at the table. They've, they've you know, they pretty much puked everywhere and and uh, aren't we having fun? Okay? And just the, the nature of fallen humanity. You can't convince them. No matter how miserable the drugs are, no matter how meaningless the sex is, no matter how empty everything is, how miserable it's making them. You can't convince them they're not having fun. How dare you? Because they're, they're getting ready to go do the next one. All right? And uh, even the, the priests and the prophets... You know, I mean, you talk about preaching under the influence. (laughs) They reel while having visions. They totter when rendering judgment. Man alive. I couldn't imagine. Gary used to talk about, he was, (laughs) he was an altar boy in his youth, Gary Williams, and grew up in a Catholic church and different things. And he said, sometimes they hit that communion wine pretty, pretty hard. 
and the the uh, the altar boys you know you usually got a good share of it after the the priest got a big share of it and uh, evidently there's some kind of relaxed priesthood going on in some of the Sunday services in the in the Catholic Church to hear Gary tell the stories all right I wasn't there but here's uh, here's something I do know for a fact the prophet Isaiah is calling out the northern kingdom and saying your prophets they're false prophets anyway your priests they're not Levitical priests anyway who are those guys okay that are serving the the, the double golden calf religious system all right the real prophets the real priests you know would be in the south as it were no. God does send true prophets to the north. Anyway, drunk on duty. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are confused by wine. So this is what happens. Drunkenness is dissipation. And all of the emptiness of this fallen world, when all of humanity seems to be given over to chemicals, all right, of the, of the recreational variety or the prescribed variety or the liquid form or the pill form or smoked form or whatever they're doing, humanity has found that uh, reality is not as fun as the reality they can create for themselves. And that's the world we, we deal with. And this is uh, obviously not good. Now, yes, better days are coming. Better days are coming. So what's the answer? Do we try to reform this world? Do we try to, we just, if we, if we vote for the right people in November, are we going to make this a better place? Or, or... <laughs> Should we be humble before the Lord our God, humble ourselves before Him, and uh, in the meantime, endure with the leaders He's given us? All right. That's the easy part of the chapter. Oh, we got some stuff coming up. Now, to whom would He teach knowledge? Verse 9. And to whom would He interpret the message? Here's the thing. If everybody is drunk and stoned out of their mind, then who's going to learn Bible class? Who's going to... I mean, what's the point? Who can he possibly teach? Those just weaned from milk? Those just taken from the breast? Actually, that might be your best audience. <laughs> you, you might bear the best fruit you've ever borne in a Sunday school class with children that are still humble enough to receive doctrine. All right, You still might have your best fruitful ministry for gospel message in the public schools by going to the children that are still young enough and humble enough to hear a gospel message. And don't mock it with a dismissive sneer of, oh, well, order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. Okay, They were mocking the prophetic message. They uh, were, were uh, repeating back the methodology of Isaiah the prophet as if he was an idiot, as if his style of teaching was, was uh, horrible. And I find this interesting. In fact, it's even in our, isn't it? Used to be. In our uh, bulletin. Why do we teach verse by verse, topic by topic? Why do we teach a little here, a little there, line upon line, precept upon precept? Our methodology for Bible study is built on the patterns established here in Isaiah chapter 28. Israel mocked the prophets of Yahweh, but their mocking communicated a vital principle for Bible doctrine. Their very mocking, the way they were belittling Isaiah and his message, actually communicates truth. Because God says yes. <laughs> the word of the Lord, look at verse 13, okay? They're mocking, they're mocking in verse 10, but Yahweh says, yes, indeed, the word of the Lord to them will be 
Order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line. Can you say that again? Can you say that again? Why does he keep repeating everything? Why does he keep repeating everything? All right? You're treating us like we're just a bunch of stupid children. Yes, I'm treating you like you're a bunch of stupid children. (laughs) Then the nature of teaching, that is the way children learn, the way children learn, and you repeat, you repeat, you repeat, you might say it a thousand times before it finally sinks in, okay? If they've got a bull in their skull, double that, okay? Because they're extra thick. It's going to sink in at some point. And that's the way the Word of God is taught. You don't learn it all on a Sunday. You don't learn it all in a month or a year or a lifetime, okay? But you spend a lifetime learning it all. And you're learning it line by line, order by order, precept by precept, okay? Here a little, there a little. I think the reason why it's doubled the way that it's doubled, because we've got a Greek canon added to the Hebrew canon, all right? And so with the line upon line, that's your Hebrew line upon line, line upon line repeated, that's your Greek line upon line. We need to be searching the scriptures to see if these things are so, using the Greek canon to unfold the Hebrew canon. This is our exercise as we rightly divide the word of truth. This is our method as we study to show ourselves approved. It says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, workmen needing not to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We have to receive it as he sent it, line on line, order on order, precept on precept, and we see it here. All right. Indeed, it will be. So to whom would he teach knowledge? To whom would he interpret the message? Those just weaned from milk? Those just taken from the breast? I think after the rapture of the church, the, uh, the most fruitful field for evangelism is going to be like it is today. It's going to be in the children of the tribulation. It's going to be those that were too young, below the age of accountability, that did not reject the gospel during the church age. Jesus said, suffer the children to come unto me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. The disciples wanted to shove the kids away, and Jesus said, no, bring them here. The Pharisees wanted to shove the kids away. The the kids were shouting Hosanna on Palm Monday, and the Pharisees wanted them to shut up. And Jesus says, no, if they shut up, the stones are going to cry out, okay? For such is the kingdom of heaven. I think the, the nature of children and uh, their, their humility to receive the gospel is a positive thing. Yes, those just weaned from milk, those just taken from the breast. Start them young. Start them with the milk of the Word of God. Accurate Bible teaching begins with milk teachings. The milk teachings for infants, and it proceeds from there. All right? And we understand how this goes. We have physical babies. We have spiritual babies. And sometimes that's the toughest thing of all for, uh, you know, for a person that gets saved later in life and they realize, man, I'm a baby all over again. I'm a, ba- I'm a newborn babe. I've got to learn the Word of God. Okay? We just had a seventh birthday party for Dan Crawl last Wednesday night. That was kind of fun. Okay? He turned seven, blew out a candle. We sang happy birthday, ate some birthday cake. Because, see, he was a babe from that very first day. He was an unbeliever the first time he visited. We've got to realize on day one, you don't know anything. And that's the biggest humility test of all. Because there's a whole lot of folks that know a whole lot of things in earthly terms that when they got saved, they got to realize they don't know anything in the spiritual dimension. So we have milk. It's spoken of here in Isaiah 28, 9. 
We've got it spoken of in 1 Corinthians 3, 2, 1 Peter 2, 2, Hebrews 5, verses 12 through 14. Are we familiar with these? 1 Corinthians chapter 2. That tells you milk is for babies, but milk is also for carnal believers that have regressed in their darkness. 1 Corinthians 3. He says, I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. And what had happened was the schismatic believers in Corinth had gotten so long, spent so much time in carnality, they'd actually regressed in their thinking. And at that point, their spiritual recovery is going to require going back to basics, going back to reground yourself in the fundamental doctrines of, of, of the New Testament. Go back and take the basics class all over and go, go back and remind yourself of that milk. Don't say, well, I've been saved too long, I don't need milk. Well, yeah, you've been in darkness so long, you do need milk. Get, get your appetite back. Start nursing it back. Start with the milk again, as this passage indicates. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. I think um, one of the great dangers is if for folks that come out of a time of reversionism is they think that, well, they can just pick up the pace right where they were. You know, you can't do that. So, well, I used to be accustomed to milk. Yeah, but that was a while ago. Okay, you're not ready for meat yet. You got to go back and do the milk again. Get your appetite back. Get back into that. It's like you know you haven't run competitively for 20 years, and well, I did a I did a, a marathon back in 1982. I, I can run one next week. Well, wait a minute. How long has it been? Are you still in that shape? Okay. All right. I'm in shape, right? Round as a shape. No. <laughs> All right. For you are still fleshly. Are you not walking like mere men? So in the recovery process from darkness, don't be surprised if you need a season or more of milk. That won't take all that length of time that it took. Don't think it'll take you 10 years to regain the 10 years you had before, but it won't be in a week, okay? That recovery is going to take some time. And then you'll be back, and then you'll, you'll get back in that, in that fighting form again. All right, 1 Peter 2 2. 1 Peter. Like newborn babes. And this is actually, it's kind of fun because it's the, it's the word for lust. Here the Bible tells us it's okay to lust. Okay, this is the good kind of lust. You want to lust after, uh, you want to lust after your wife in marriage, but, but you want to lust after doctrine in terms of the Word of God. Like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word or lust for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if indeed you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Getting saved is called a taste. You've got to build on that taste. You've got to, you've got to start nursing. You've got to start milking as soon as you can. And then you're going to build from that milk as Hebrews 5 tells us. You don't stay on milk forever. You know, if you're a teenage high school kid, you probably should not be nursing. There comes a point you've got to be weaned off of the breast milk. Hebrews 5, 12 through 14. And I know there's different philosophies of this and different mothers, you know, they, 
Sharon always tried to go a year, and then there's different traditions on that, and some are less and some are more. Um, But there comes a time, as it says, uh, I love this, he introduces Melchizedek in verse 10, and then he says in verse 11, concerning him we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing this is what we understand. The metaphor of, of milk, the metaphor of meat, the metaphor of drinking and eating is a metaphor that relates to the reality of studying the Word of God, of hearing doctrine, of, of hearing with faith that we're looking at in Galatians right now, right? Hearing with faith. I'd love to give a full, complete doctrinal breakdown on the Melchizedek priesthood and, and how that, and the author of Hebrews says, you can't handle that right now. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You know, Pat Pearson can't use you in Sunday school because hey, you're still trying to figure out rebound. You're still trying to figure out how to confess your sins, how to be in fellowship. You can't even figure out some of the basic stuff. You've got to get a handle on that before we can be teachers. And it's not hard. Everybody should get there. You don't need a seminary degree to teach in Sunday school. What do you need to teach Sunday school? You've got to have the basics down. By this time, you ought to be teachers. You have, but you have need again for the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. You're back to the milk process again. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature. And that's what we're, what we're all about. God the Father doesn't want to bring a bunch of infants to heaven. He wants to bring mature brothers and sisters, mature believers for all eternity. Solid food is for the mature who because of practice, oh my goodness, it's not just the amount of classes you sit and listen to. It doesn't say because of uh, you know observation, because of listening, because of, well, I soaked it up, I took it in. And, and as if the Christian way of life is all about intake, 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 intake. And you know how many thousands of tapes I've listened to? Do you know how many notebooks I've got full? Yeah, you're pretty fat, all right. Are you using any of it? Are you practicing what you've learned? Are you a hearer only of the word that deludes themselves? Solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Right away you realize, man, this Christian walk is a walk of conflict. It's the battle of good and evil, and I'm engaged in this angelic conflict. I need to be using the Word of God, putting into practice what I'm learning. So yes, accurate Bible teaching begins with milk teachings for infants, and it proceeds from there. That's why I think, I mean, you start them young. I'm thankful for this day, for every Sunday school teacher I ever had. All right? Now, the mocking. Order on order, order on order. Line on line, line on line. You know, the Hebrew is, is, is you read it in the Hebrew, it's like baby talk, right? Lakau, lakau, wakau, lakau, whatever it is. I meant to print it off and read it. I don't have it in my pulpit this morning. But it, it's just, it's the little babble sounds like a, like a child would make. Ma, 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 da, 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 laka, laka. Okay? And if, if the little kid doesn't know what he's saying, he's just repeating what it sounds, and he finds that, hey, I can make some of those sounds. Some kids get dazzled and impressed with all the sounds they can start making. And then it's kind of a game for them. Then it's kind of fun. Ooh, if I make this sound, they're going to feed me, okay? If I make that sound, they're going to 
they're going to change my diaper. If I make this sound, you know, they learn that communicating has value. <laughs> okay? But the first things they say just are just gibberish. And if they happen to sound like real words, like if the if your firstborn son happens to say dada before he says mama, well then that counts. That's that's bragging rights right there. He said dada before he said mama. Okay? And does the kid have any capacity to identify the, the you know paternal versus maternal progenitors of his DNA? Of course not. He's just making sounds. But the neat thing is, you know, like they say, out of the mouth of babes, the, the little sounds that babies can make, like laka, laka, raka, raka, you have the line on line, order on order, line on line, a little here, a little there. The very Hebrew words that communicate the methodology for doctrinal studies. The methodology to understand the whole counsel of the Word of God from Alpha to Omega, from Genesis to Revelation. How do we put these things together? This verse defines our methodology. And it's a great thing. Accurate Bible teaching is progressive, comprehensive, and cumulative. Progressive, comprehensive, and cumulative. Why does that surprise us? There is so much in earthly studies that that is the same way. This is the nature of how we're designed and how we learn. You don't start kindergartners with trigonometry or differential calculus, right? You teach them how to count. You teach them their numbers, and they put those numbers in order. They learn how to add those numbers together. They learn how to subtract those numbers from one another. You you can't just, I mean, you know what I'm talking about, okay? I'm going to run out of time if I take too long with this. Do you start a brand new believer who just got saved this morning with some of the intricate depths of the Alpha and Omega plan of God? Or do you start them off smaller than that? Say, hey, you're saved and now there's a, there's a walk you need to walk in. All right, you've got to become a disciple. There's a word that you can learn from. You've got to learn how to confess your sins. You've got to learn how to stay in fellowship. We'll get to the deep things of God. We'll get to the meat but we're first, we're going to start with the milk. We've got to get you grounded. And the whole idea of discipleship gives you the content you need to get a believer grounded. All right? And it's technically, it's the upper room discourse from John 13 through 17. That'll get a, a brand new believer grounded to operate in the church age. Accurate Bible teaching is progressive, comprehensive, and cumulative. All right? It's not sermonic and topical. It's not just a feel-good thing on a Sunday basis. Not a self-help, um, moralistic, therapeutic uh, deal. Okay, We're not here for the chicken soup. We're here for the milk and the meat and everything in between. We're here to be transformed because the living and abiding Word of God transforms how we think and who we are. That's what it's about. You can thank the Lord for it. Now, Israel's rejection. Israel's rejection of Isaiah prefigures Israel's rejection of Christ. And the consequences are significant. Notice, indeed, verse 11, here's a promise. Indeed, he will speak to this people through stammering lips and through a foreign tongue. 
This is a prophecy. And failure to understand this prophecy has wrecked too many believers in, in Pentecostalism and charismatic churches and different things. Here is a prophecy related to the gift of tongues. He will speak to this people through stammering lips in a foreign tongue. He who said to them, here is rest, give rest to the weary, here is repose, but they would not listen. We have a prophecy of the rejection of Jesus Christ. The the, the people of Isaiah's day rejected Isaiah and said, well, that's just baby talk. The people of Jesus' day reject Jesus, and they're going to pay a steep price. Because Jesus is the one who says, here is rest, give rest to the weary. And they reject their Christ. They crucify their Christ. Here is repose, but they would not listen. So we have here in foreshadowing a rejection of Jesus Christ, the discipline that's going to come on the Jewish people, the consequences for crucifying their Christ, the consequences for having their kingdom delayed. In the outworking of the plan of God, then a new creation is going to be brought upon this earth, that is, the body of Christ, neither Jew nor Gentile. And Jewish people are going to start hearing Gentile languages preaching the great things of God. And that's going to be a slap in the face. It's going to be a horrendous wake-up call. And so we need to understand it for what it is. Israel's rejection of Isaiah prefigures Israel's rejection of Christ. The consequences for that rejection will include their national destruction and the final warning of that national destruction via the gift of tongues. Israel's rejection of Isaiah prefigures Israel's rejection of Christ. The consequences for that rejection will include their national destruction. It's in this context. Their national destruction and the final warning via the gift of tongues. And this is what we see when we connect, as the Scripture does. We're not just making this up or putting it together. Scripture itself, line on line, line on line. The Isaiah 28 line, the 1 Corinthians 14 line. Put them together. Here a little, there a little. Put them together, as the Apostle Paul does in 1 Corinthians 14. But you will note, what's the outcome in verse 13? They may go and stumble backward, be broken, snared, and taken captive. In the context of Isaiah 28, 13, the gift of tongues precedes national destruction and captivity. It precedes national destruction and captivity. It is a warning of national destruction and captivity. That's in the context of Isaiah 28, 13. It gets unfolded even more in 1 Corinthians 14. All right. They may stumble, go and stumble backward, be broken, snared, and taken captive. So let's turn over to 1 Corinthians 14 and see the other side of this. Because it's in this passage we understand there's a purpose for the gift of tongues. And tongues is different than prophecy. It's different than word of knowledge. It's different than the other gifts that are going to be done away. Tongues is not done away. Tongues ceases. And that's different. 
So in chapter 14, the key verses we're looking at are verses 20 through 22. Before we see those, though, uh, we've got to look back to chapter 13 and look at uh, verses uh, 8 through 11, I guess. 1 Corinthians 13, 8, love never fails. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there is tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. Okay? Just lock in on that. There's done away, cease, done away. In that order. Done away on the first and the last. Done away centers on the prophecy and the knowledge. In the middle is tongues. Tongues will cease. Verse 9 expands on parts 1 and 3, the done away parts. We know in part and we prophesy in part. It says nothing about tongues. It talks about the first and the third. Not the middle one, just the first and the third. We know in part, we prophesy in part. But when the, partial, when the perfect comes, the in part, in part, will be done away. Again, not cease, done away. And so there's your doctrine for the perfect coming, the in part, in part, done away. The reason why prophecy is done away, it's a different issue than tongues. Tongues is not done away. Tongues ceases. And there's a reason why tongues ceases. Because the purpose for tongues is over with the destruction of Jerusalem. Tongues ceases. Notice verse 11. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. Similar to the Isaiah context, right? Childhood, growing up, building on what we've learned as children, growing up. All right, we get into chapter 14 then. What do we see? Well, we see uh, tongues in these early verses. We see prophecy as well. And the application. So, let's just look at verses 20 and following now. He says, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. In evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written. Of course, it's written in Isaiah. Why is that called the law? That's a whole other topic. But in the Old Testament it is written, By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people. That's Israel. And even so, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. We have God's own interpretation of what Isaiah 28, 11 is about. What is Isaiah 28, 13 about? Why did God prophesy that Gentile languages were going to speak to the Jewish people? Because the final warning to those Jewish people would be they start hearing the things of God from those Gentile languages. So then, tongues are for a sign not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. And unbelieving Israel and rejection of their Messiah is what Isaiah 28 is all about and what 1 Corinthians 14 is explaining. Prophecy, on the other hand, is not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. And it goes on to describe the role that a prophet could have in the apostolic church. Okay, We don't have any more today because we're in the post-apostolic era. But here's the point. Tongues was a warning to the unbelieving Jews that they would go and be broken and stumble backward and be taken captive. What we saw in terms of the national destruction and final warning, 
from Isaiah 28:13, that they may go and stumble backward, be broken, snared, and taken captive. Can you imagine? Just try. Put yourself in an Old Testament framework. Pretend you don't know about the church. You don't know about the New Testament. You don't know anything about the last 2,000 years of church history. Okay? All you know is the previous 2,000 years of Jewish history. That ever since Abraham, the covenant nation has been the Jewish nation. That the message to the world has been a Jewish message to the world. The scriptures have been Hebrew scriptures. The prophets have been Hebrew prophets for the most part. All right? The scriptures have been Hebrew scriptures exclusively. That the anticipation of the Christ would be a Jewish Messiah. It is in Abraham that all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. If a Gentile wanted to know about salvation, he had to go learn it from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the whole idea that the things of God would be spoken to them in these stammering lips, how shocking it would be. Let's look at Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 on Pentecost. And all these people are hearing all this preaching. And you'll notice, what were they saying? Because the people that were gathered together... um, we're uh, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt. This is a lot of languages here. Cretans and Arabs. And it says, We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. See, it wasn't just this demonic babbling that no one knows what you're saying. They knew exactly what they were hearing. They were hearing the mighty deeds of God, but they were hearing it in those foreign languages, in their birth languages. And so they all continued in amazement and great perplexity. (laughs) Wait a minute. We're the stewards. We should be a light to the Gentiles. It's backwards. It's upside down. It's, wait a minute. It should be the Jewish people telling all those pagans the great things of God. And instead, we're hearing in pagan languages. We're hearing the great things of God. And it's a slap in the face. It is, it is a provocation to jealousy. It is a, the final warning that they are about to stumble, be broken backward, and taken captive. Because God promised them in 700 years before Christ through the prophet Isaiah, that he would speak to this people in the stammering lips in the foreign tongue. That when they heard that, they better look out. All right? And so the, the role of these Gentile languages in the first century of the church, the role of the gift of tongues to warn the Jewish people about the destruction of Jerusalem, why did the gift of tongues cease? Well, Jerusalem was destroyed. No point warning the Jews after 70 A.D., no point warning the Jews in the 80s or 90s or 2nd century or 3rd century or 19th century when glossolalia came back into common practice among professing Christians. Why warn the Jewish people of Titus's destruction of Jerusalem after the fact? It was designed to be their sign, the sign to the unbelievers before the 
fact, before their destruction, before their national uh, dispersion. Now, coming back to Isaiah 28 then, can you read all of that into this one chapter? Of course not. You can look at broken, snared, and taken captive and think, hmm, that might apply to the northern kingdom when the Assyrians took them away. Might apply to the southern kingdom when Babylon took them away. And you might have a fervent uh, theological debate with anybody you want about northern kingdom, southern kingdom. Who was the prophet speaking of there when he said broken, stumble, taken backward, taken captive? In the Old Testament, it's, it's left unanswered. But 1 Corinthians 14 makes it clear. It was neither the Assyrian nor the Babylonian captivity that the application of this prophecy came in the first century of the, of the church. The destruction was Jerusalem in 70 AD. And it's because of the New Testament we know that. Because of 1 Corinthians 14, we know that. All right. The woe to the northern kingdom also serves to warn the southern kingdom. Similar to Ezekiel 16, right? Ezekiel 16, (laughs) the Lord called the Two kingdoms, he called them sisters. Aholabah, Aholabama, I think. Obama, no. Aholabah, Aholabama, whatever it was. And the older sister, she was a piece of work. She was a harlot like anything. And it's pretty uh, pretty brutal in the, the language of, of that. Don't, you know, it's, it's, it's PG-13 in the... Uh, sex activity there in in that chapter, okay? But the younger sister should have learned. Should have learned from the older sister. Don't do that. Commit harlotry and the God of Israel will judge you. And yet the younger sister was was twice as bad. Twice as bad. And the judgment in the Babylonian captivity was worse than the judgment in the Assyrian captivity. All right? Same thing here. Scoffers. Hear the word of the Lord, O scoffers, who rule this people who are in Jerusalem. So the context is shifted. It's not the proud crowd of the drunkards of Ephraim any longer. Quit scoffing. Quit acting like you're better than those guys. You better learn from their rebuke. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death. With Sheol, we have made a pact. The overwhelming scourge will not reach us when it passes by. For we have made falsehood our refuge and we have concealed ourselves with deception. Interesting, the political leadership knows that it's a lie, but they don't care. They make the bargain they make because it keeps them in power. Why is it that they're so eager to sign all these treaties with Babylon, with Assyria, with Egypt, with Antichrist? Oh, they're going to sign a covenant. They've got this great seven-year guarantee they're going to sign with the coming prince. They're going to fall for it too. All right. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. Thank you, Lord. (laughs) We have the cornerstone. We believe in Jesus Christ. We have the reality. In the church age, of course, we understand the the fulfillment of this. We've got a New Testament perspective to go back to this Old Testament prophecy. 
and say, thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ. We love them. They stumbled over them. The cornerstone became a rock of offense. They stumbled over them. And we know, uh, we know it for what it was in the ministry of Jesus Christ. So this becomes now the context for Judah's prophecy of the cornerstone. The woe to the northern kingdom also serves to warn the southern kingdom of Judah as this warning now becomes the context for Judah's prophecy of the cornerstone. And verses 14 through 29, I'd love to spend the next eight weeks <laughs> giving the doctrine of the cornerstone and all, we can't do it. It's not our format this hour. The doctrine of the cornerstone. I will make justice the measuring line. Man, can't wait for that. Righteousness, the level. Man. Instead of today's criminal justice system and, uh, and everything else, instead of today's uh, abusive, the, the lawfare that takes place, you've heard of lawfare? Using the law to conduct warfare against political groups you disagree with? Suing them for their livelihood? And then going after when they try to raise funds, you go after the fundraisers? Wow. Imagine a justice system that's measured by justice and righteousness. Then hail will sweep away the refuge of lies. The waters will overflow the secret place. Your covenant of death will be canceled. (laughs) Revoked. Hello. Cancel that out. Null and void because the king is here. Your pact with shale will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, then you will become its trampling place. And of course, he will come to trample out the vintage, right? Second advent. Israel is not, is not, it won't be fun. It won't be pleasant. When they come through the wrath of God, the unfolding of hell on earth, that is the tribulation of Israel. And that's what it takes to humble the Jewish nation to receive their king. Without it, they will not be humbled. All right. As often as it passes through, it will seize you. It's going to be frequent. It's going to be several, several waves of it. Trumpets, seals, bowls, okay? For morning after morning, it will pass through any time during the day or night. It will be sheer terror to understand what it means. And the bed, you ever feel like this? The bed is too short on which to stretch out. And the blanket is too small to wrap oneself in. You know, you think you have problems. Man, my blanket's too short. <laughs> you know, Here's our culture falling apart and everybody's all worked up about the Kardashians. They're all worked up about whatever, these frivolous little stupid things. Do you not have a context to know that we are so on the verge of national destruction? We are cursing Israel. Now my bed's too short. Like Goldilocks. Too soft, too hard, too... Will people ever be happy with anything? For the Lord will rise up as at Mount Perizim. He will be stirred up as in the valley of Gibeon. What were those about? To do his task, his unusual task. To do his work, his extraordinary work. Oh my. The things he did not come to do in first advent. He didn't come to judge the world. He came to save the world. Well, just wait till second advent. Just wait till tribulation. Just wait until with a mighty arm and wrath poured out. So now do not carry on as scoffers or your fetters will be made stronger. For I have heard from the Lord God of hosts 
of decisive destruction on all the earth. This judgment day is coming. So give ear and hear my voice. Listen and hear my words. Does the farmer plow continually to plant seed? You know, it's not plant, 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 plant. You don't plow, 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 plow. Do you spend 12 months plowing? When do you stop the plowing to plant the seed? When do you go from this step to the next step to the next step to the next step? Does he continually turn and harrow the ground? Does he not level its surface and sow uh, dill and scatter cumin and plant wheat in rows, barley in its place, rye within its area? See, it's all on a plan. It's all on a program. It's all on a schedule. And how long do you think God's going to wait until the harvest gets reaped? Israel better wake up and understand reaping is right on the way. For his God instructs and teaches him properly. Dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is the cartwheel driven over cumin. You know, I mean, now I'm not a farmer. I don't know this stuff. I'm just reading the word here. But there are certain things that have to be done in certain ways. Okay, I get that. Farmers get that. God gets that. Dill is beaten out with a rod. Cumin is beaten out with a club. Get it right. And God's going to do both properly. He knows what's the dill. He knows what's the cumin. He knows what needs the rod. He knows what needs the, the club. Grain for bread is crushed. Indeed, he does not continue to thresh it forever. I mean, if all you do is thresh, 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 then what are you left with? The wheel of his cart and his horses eventually damage it. Nor does he thresh it longer. Okay? This also comes from the Lord of hosts, who has made his counsel wonderful and his wisdom great. Oh, man, there is so much doctrine in that message. But this is the context for the prophecy of the cornerstone. This is the context for Israel and the threshing they've got to go through, the beating they've got to take. And God is so very faithfully going to, uh, to bring it about. Now, so much of this chapter... You want to connect it with chapter 7. King Ahaz's previous treaty with Assyria was bad enough. All right? This new alliance is a covenant with death itself. It says he called a covenant with death, a covenant with Sheol. As if the previous treaty with Assyria was bad enough. I think Hezekiah will do worse than Ahaz. And that's hard to say. All right? Again, um, there's context for this. I'm running rapidly out of time, but remember what we were dealing with in chapter 7? Ahaz was kind of in a bad spot. Uh, Reason and Pekah had formed an alliance. Reason, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, they had gone up to Jerusalem to wage war against it. And so uh, Ahaz says, okay, I'm going to form an alliance. I'm going to ask the Assyrians to help me out here. And the Lord said, bad idea. Turn to the Lord. I'll help you out here. I'll rescue you here. Ask for me a sign. I'll give you any sign you want. You're not going to fall to these guys. Ask any miracle you want. And then he wouldn't ask for a sign. So God gave him a sign. Said, here, I'll give you a sign. A virgin will conceive and bear a son. That's the context for chapter 7. You can read about it too in 2 Kings chapter 16, verses 1 through 9. I just don't have time. There's now a new alliance And what we're going to learn in chapter 30 and chapter 31, we're going to learn that the political leaders in Israel are actually forming connections with Egypt. They think Egypt is going to bail them out. 
It's a covenant with death. Covenant with Sheol called here. Okay? The previous bad treaty was answered with a prophecy of the virgin son. That was in chapter 7. Isn't God faithful? The previous bad treaty was answered with a prophecy of the virgin son. This bad treaty is answered with the prophecy of the cornerstone. This bad treaty is answered with a prophecy of the cornerstone. Oh, this is fun to consider. How powerful is the cornerstone? Well, Isaiah didn't make it up. In fact, Isaiah wasn't even the first to use the term. It's used in Psalm 118. Psalm 118 in verse 22. We may have to go an extra hour today. Is that all right? Man. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our, in our eyes. See, Yahweh is about to do His extraordinary work. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Okay, It's not today. It's the day of the Lord. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. O Lord, do save. Do Lord, do Lord. Right? Do save, do save. You know how to say that in Aramaic? Hosanna. Hosanna. This is what the children were singing on Palm Monday. Hosanna. They were citing Psalm 118. They were embracing the cornerstone and the Pharisees wanted none of it. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. This is their promise. And they rejected him at first advent. Only the children cried out, Hosanna. The religious leaders told those children to shut up. When his nation rejected him, Psalm 118 was the passage he identified with. And Jesus Christ made Psalm 118 the conditional criteria for his second advent. I've got to leave you with this because we're out of time. Jesus Christ made Psalm 119, well, Psalm 118, I'm sorry, conditional for his second advent. He cannot come again until the Jewish nation acknowledges the Christ whom they crucified. Oh, this is something. Okay, real quickly then, Luke 19, followed by Matthew 23. You know, the first Sunday back after a mission trip is always the worst. It's been building and building and building. I've been in teaching withdrawals. All right. I taught 32 times in Ukraine. But it wasn't the same as a Sunday morning pulpit. Here we go. All right, Luke 19. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully. See, this is where he said, go and there's a, there's a donkey waiting for you. Go into the village ahead of you. There, as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has yet ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you... Almost done. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found just as he had told them. Why did this man have a donkey tied right there? Well, the owner said to him, why are you untying the colt? And said, the Lord has need of it. These are believers with doctrine that were ready. They knew. They counted the days and they knew this is the day. This completes the 69th 7 of Daniel chapter 9. 
So they brought it to Jesus. They threw their coats on the colt, put Jesus on it. He was going. They were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They are reciting Psalm 118. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Then he approached Jerusalem and he began to weep over it. Oh, he began to weep over it. And here, actually, I prefer the Matthew record to the Luke record. So Matthew 23. They're parallel. Matthew 23 now, verses 37 through 39. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather you, your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. When the sovereignty of God meets the volition of man, it's the sovereignty of God that gave volition to man. And God honors that rebellion with judgment. You were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say. Okay, here's the criteria for the second advent of Jesus Christ. Israel, the nation, must say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Israel, as a nation, must identify with the cornerstone doctrine of Psalm 118. All right. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for Isaiah. Isaiah, Father, of course he was rejected. He prefigured Christ who was rejected. The tradition holds true. Isaiah was sawn in half. And Father, uh, yet he stayed faithful. He taught your word. He gave us the prophecy of the virgin-born Son of God. He gave us the prophecy of the cornerstone. There's so much, Father, we thank you for the prophet Isaiah and for the blessings we have to study this, uh, this powerful, powerful book. Humble us, open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts that we might live this testimony. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.